we're all asking those questions. We start asking those questions really around middle school or so, and a lot of times we never stop asking until we're long into adulthood. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What do I want to be? Who do I want to be? And the answers often depend on the roles that we play. That's just kind of how we answer those questions. I'm a dad, I'm a student, I'm a nurse, I'm a photographer. I'm here to raise my kids, I'm here to learn, I'm here to help other people, I'm here to help capture memories. That's how we kind of define ourselves. But that's not really who we are or why we're here. That's what we do, and those are important things. But it's easy to identify ourselves by that measure. It's what we're known for, and it's how how people see us by the roles that we play. As the video pointed out, it's easy to see ourselves as the center of the universe. Just think about how many people are simply famous for being famous and how we think about them and how our culture idolizes them. And yes, I use that word on purpose, idolizes them. But what happens when you fail in one or more of your roles? When you mess up? If your identity is totally found in your circumstances or in what you do or in what role you play, then a failure will make you crumble. It's unfortunate that the world tries to tell us that our identity is found in what we do, in how much we know, or in what we accomplish. Because as soon as we mess up, the world can chew us up and spit us out. We feel disregarded because we've placed our value in worldly measures. Many of you know at least part of my story in this area. For some, this will be the first time you've heard it, and that's okay. Some of you have not heard the whole thing. I don't think I've ever shared the entire thing with you. And actually, if you were here last week when Pastor Mario spoke, you might hear some similarities between his story and my story. We didn't plan it that way. That's just the way it happened. Well, back in 2002, I graduated from seminary. My wife and I were involved in a wonderful Bible-believing church that was growing both in number and in spiritual maturity. We started looking for ministry positions all over the country, but we knew that the church we were in would be increasing its staff fairly soon. There was no guarantee that I'd be getting a position in that church or that I'd even qualify for any of the positions they were going to be hiring. But by 2004, a little over two years later, it was apparent that one of the new positions was right up my alley. It fit my skill set, it felt, fit my, my passions and my beliefs and, and my, everything that I wanted to do in ministry at that point. I was a good fit for what they needed, and they considered hiring me among other candidates. Eventually I was hired, and we were thrilled. We were incredibly close with our life group. We had never experienced that kind of community that we found in that group. When you're in a life group like that, it simply can't be replaced. One couple in particular had become our closest friends we'd ever had. It was the kind of friendship, actually, that we didn't even call to invite each other over. We just showed up. We just showed up at least once a week at each other's houses to hang out and cook dinner together and just spend time together and and help raise our kids together and all those sorts of things. And since I got that job, we didn't have to say goodbye to them or to our life group to move cross-country, and we were thrilled. We were growing as a couple, and I felt fulfilled in ministry and affirmed in my calling. The church kept growing. We moved from school cafeterias 
to our own brand new building right on a major state road between two growing suburban bedroom communities. Location-wise, you couldn't have beat it. As a staff, we could hardly keep up with the pace of the growth in our church. After about two and a half years, the responsibilities of my job with a growing church became too much for one full-time role. My roles included uh, overseeing life groups and helping people get connected in ministry and in life groups. So I I call it assimilation, helping people to assimilate in life groups and overseeing life groups and the care of the, the leaders and the coaches and so forth. So the leadership decided that it was time to turn my job into two full-time positions because the load was too much for one person to do well. So the lead pastor offered me the opportunity to think about the two jobs and to decide which one I wanted to take. I mean, can you ask for a better, better scenario? Here's two jobs, pick one, whichever one you, you like the most. And then we would hire for the other one. I decided and started in that new role. Six weeks later, just because of the timing, the way it worked out, it was, it was time for the annual employee evaluations. I went into the lead pastor's office with my self-evaluation in hand. I gave it to him. He sat it down on the table and he said, we're going to have to let you go. I sat in stunned silence for several minutes. He didn't say anything. He allowed me to speak first. After about four or five minutes, I said that I'm out of ministry. We love this church so much, I can't imagine us going anywhere else. I'm out of ministry. And that night, as I shared with my wife, we, we both knew, and you know, coming out of the moment, having some time to think about it, we knew we couldn't continue there. With that one sentence, we were going to have to let you go. I went from feeling fulfilled and passionate and optimistic and, and, and utilized to disregarded and ruined. We spent many, many hours in conversations with the lead pastor and the overseers trying to figure out what happened. The justification was that the role was not a good fit for my skill set. But there had been no warning, no offer of training or equipping to gain the skills. And even the overseers were surprised when they heard what had happened. Now, when you lose your job at a church, you lose so much more than a job. We lost our community. My wife and daughter lost their church and a lot of friends. I'm not suggesting that getting fired from any job is easy. Please don't hear that. But most jobs don't include heavy involvement from your family like a church job does. I don't go to my wife's work several hours a week and volunteer there and hang out with her co-workers and, and have community with her co-workers. Most jobs just don't include that kind of involvement. Worst of all, worst of all, our very dear friends accused me of lying to my wife about the whole situation. You must have known there must have been some warning. Our friendship was destroyed with one conversation. I felt the same way the world and Satan want to make us feel, disregarded. It was like I didn't need to exist anymore. The only people who seemed to care at all about me were my wife and daughter. Friends from the church who had no involvement in the situation whatsoever didn't reach out to check on me. I mean, I felt like a leper. 
after four years of seminary, two years of waiting for a ministry job, and two and a half years doing what I loved, I felt disregarded, ignored, and discarded. My identity changed in a heartbeat. I had tied my identity up into what I was doing, how wonderful the church was going, how many people we were baptizing, how much fun we were having in ministry. I was proud of the work we were doing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's fine to be proud of your work. But I was also prideful because I thought I was about, it was about our awesome staff and not about how we were yielding to God's guidance. I mean, I always felt like God was just lucky to have us. I, that's really the attitude that I had kind of developed. And I forgot where my identity should be. So Ephesians 1, 7 had to become very real to me. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. My identity isn't supposed to be rooted in what I do, what I accomplish, or how successful I am. The truth is, when I find my identity in anything but Christ, I come to realize that I am disregarded and abandoned and discarded. The world and Satan will have us believe that we are worthless, that we're just wastes of space. All we do is take up resources. Unless you make a humongous positive impact in the world, you're really just, you're just a taker, is what they'll have us believe. That's why I had to and we have to find our identity in Christ. Thankfully, for those who have been redeemed, there is a truth that cannot be changed or taken away. And this comes from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What the, girl, what the world disregarded as worthless, God saw as worthy of giving his life to redeem. Now in this series, we're going to continue exploring various ways the world and Satan view us and put them up against the way that God wants us to see ourselves and the way that he views us. We're going to sort of present the lies of the world versus the, the truths of God. And we're going to learn more and more about how we've been saved by faith in Christ. That's the goal of this series. As you're going through this, the season of Lent, whether you're keeping Lent or not in your own way, that's what this series will be about, is what, is the, what does the world tell us? What are the lies the world tells us? And what is the truth that God tells us? And how are we going to live in that and believe it for ourselves? Let's fast forward to my story. It was spring of 2007. So about three year, two, excuse me, a year and a half after all, kind of all this stuff went down. I had been out of full-time ministry for about six months. There was just some other things going on there. But I had found a sales job that I was good at, that I enjoyed, and that had more than doubled my income. I worked independently, and I got to travel all across the southeast visiting college campuses. I mean, it was awesome. I'm an introvert, strong introvert. Basically, most of the day by myself in a car, driving to college campuses. <sighs> Loved it. <laughs> Loved it. And the money was just flowing in. I was in the process of healing from the wound that I had received when I was fired. But Sue, my wife, knew that something was missing. She told me, she said, you've got to get back to ministry. 
you have to get back into ministry because she could tell I would not feel, feel fulfilled in any other career. As hard as it would be to take that kind of leap of faith and step back into a trusting relationship with the church, she knew, and I eventually knew, that we needed it. One of the things they, always, they tell you in seminary, it's kind of the, the famous orientation, you know, when, you're, when you go to seminary or Bible college. If you're called to ministry, make sure, because if you can see yourself doing anything else in the world, do it, because it's hard. And Sue realized in her wisdom, there was nothing else in this world that I was going to be fu- completely fulfilled in. So I dipped my toes in. Of course, I was cautious. I was hurt. I was wounded. I was still trying to figure that out. I was being very selective in which jobs I would apply for. In the meantime, Sue's dad, a wonderful man who had become like a dad to me over the years, had declining health due to cancer. He was nearing the end of his life, and he was, he was suffering. So we packed up and went to stay with Sue's mom and dad indefinitely. After two weeks, Sue had to go back to South Carolina to go home to, back, to get back to work. But because I was an independent contractor, self-employed, I was able to stay. During that time, that, that time that I was in Pennsylvania, a little church in Wisconsin contacted me about their associate pastor position. I had applied, and after I applied, they decided they wanted more information about me. I explained our current situation, me staying with my father-in-law and mother-in-law, and they eventually asked to do a phone interview. I scheduled it with the caveat that I might have to reschedule depending on my father-in-law's condition. They were very understanding. Of course, that church was Cornerstone. The senior pastor was um, Eric Haskins, my predecessor. I was being interviewed for the associate pastor position to serve under his leadership. During the interview, I was hesitant when they asked me about the circumstances surrounding my termination. I mean, who wants to talk about that? But I was very honest about it, figuring there's kind of no reason to hide anything. But in the back of my mind, of course, who wants to hire a pastor that's been fired that had less than three years of ministry experience? Eventually, as you know, I was hired. And when I... (laughs) When I eventually got, when I got here on staff and I eventually asked Eric, why did you want to take a chance on someone that most churches would just regard as damaged goods? Frankly, churches will do that. He said this, and I don't do this to boast, I'm just telling you what he told me. Eric said, I told the search team that anyone... Sorry? Anyone who's willing to move in to care for his father-in-law 24 hours a day for six weeks is worth interviewing. I no longer felt disregarded. I felt redeemed. Cornerstone redeemed my story. I owe more to this church than I could ever hope to repay. Now, the redemption that I had through Cornerstone was not soul-saving. That had been done already in my life. Let me be clear about that. It's different. Jesus redeemed my soul when he went to the cross with my sin on his back and I said yes to it, that that offer of salvation. But Cornerstone saw through the junk and the wounds and thought that there was something of value in there. Now I do need to close the loop on the other church. I only tell that story publicly because of the healing and reconciliation that have taken place. 
as I said, we spent many hours in phone calls and meetings. We've been able to forgive and be forgiven. We've reconciled with the pastor. We've reconciled with friends. We've come a long, long way. I only tell it publicly because of that, because of the end of that story. Now, are we best friends with the pastor? No, we're not. Will we ever attend that church again? Probably not, but not because of the pastor or not because of the people, just because it would just feel weird. It would just, that's just the reality. It would just feel weird. That the pastor is pastoring somewhere else now in another part of the country. And in the end, the decision of that pastor was probably the right one. I have definitely come to that conclusion years ago. The reality is the job probably did not suit my skill set at the time. And without that decision, I probably would have continued in ministry with a prideful heart and with misguided intentions. I occasionally get the question from folks when they're working through forgiveness of other people, how do you know when you've truly forgiven someone? And my answer is usually this, which I actually learned from that pastor. When you can honestly say that you desire God's best for them, when you can say that you desire God's best for someone, then you have forgiven them. And when I think about that church, I can honestly say I desire God's best for them. The redemption that I found through Cornerstone is nothing compared to the redemption that anyone can find through a relationship in Jesus Christ. And maybe the best-known summary verse that tells us that we are redeemed not disregarded, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What is that price? There's a price that's kind of on our heads. God loves us so much that he wants to spend eternity with us. He created us. Of course he wants to spend eternity with us. But the problem is there is a price on our head because we have done things, chosen to do things. We live in a sinful world. We are sinners. And that sin separates us from God. It makes it impossible for us to spend eternity with him because sin cannot go unpunished. And in God's justice, and people have, a tr- have trouble when I use that word in this way, but in God's justice, separation from him means eternal punishment in hell. People say, that's not fair. You want to bet? You think God has the fair end of this bargain? Because he sent his son to die for us, to buy us for a price. Jesus came and took the punishment that we deserve that should separate us from, from the Father forever. He took our sin upon himself And he said, I'll take it because I I am just like the Father. I am God and I want to spend eternity with the people that we've created. So he came and he said, I'm going to buy you with a price. And the price is my life. That's not fair. Don't don't ever tell me that the gospel is not fair. It's, It's not, but it's not for God. It's more than fair for us. So he bought us for a price. He said, because of what I'm doing, because of, because of this Jesus coming and sacrificing himself on the cross, because of that, then our punishment has been paid and we can have our sin taken away from us. You were bought with a price. 
But that's not enough either. It's not just enough to say that God loves us, we sin, and Jesus came to die for us. There's, there's one part that we have to play, and that is we need to say yes to that. We have to accept that we are sinners, separated from God, that deserve eternal punishment. And the only way out of that is through Jesus. Not through things that we do, not for how good we are, not for how much we come to church or how often we pray. Only because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So that's kind of the fourth part of the gospel. That's really the unfair part, again, of the gospel. All I have to do is say, yes, I agree with these things. I agree that they're true, and I want to accept God's forgiveness through Jesus. That's redemption. My story about the other church and Cornerstone, that's, that's redemption of a different kind. I'm talking about soul-saving redemption, redemption for eternity. And if you've never heard that before, never accepted that before, today is an awesome opportunity for you to do that. There's no reason to wait. I mean, you can, you can look at your life and say, yep, I am a sinner. I make mistakes. I do things I shouldn't do all the time. There's nothing I can do to repay that. I need somebody else to do it for me. And I'm, saying, I'm telling you, Jesus has done that for you. All you have to do is say thank you and yes. So maybe you came today and, again, you haven't accepted that before. You haven't said yes to that before. If you have or if you want to, I certainly want to encourage you to talk to me, talk to the person that invited you, talk to another overseer, staff person, life group leader. We would love to spend time talking about that and praying with you about that. Because you were bought with a price. And we can't repay that price. So what's next? What do we do next in this series as we look forward to how we move into understanding our identity in Christ? There's a couple of ideas that I have for you this morning, and we'll have more as the series goes on. But first of all, I would encourage you, if you haven't picked up one of these before, pick up one of these bookmarks. Pick up another one if you need another one. That's totally fine. We have plenty of them, and we'll get more. But there's a bookmark in the back of this room and also the back of Second Story, Who I Am in Christ. And it's just a list of verses under the, under the headings of I am accepted, I am secure, and I am, I am significant. And it's truths from God's word about each of those categories. And then on the back, there's, there's a list of Satan's lies and God's truths, and we're going to go through some of those in the next couple of weeks. For example, Satan says your identity comes from what you have done, but God's truth is your identity comes from what God has done for you. And then there's the verses on this side. So even if you have one or two at home, that's fine. You have multiple books, take, take multiple bookmarks. Totally fine. We have plenty. The next suggestion, maybe something that you want to do, is, is memorize some verses that you need the most right now. For me, I needed Ephesians 1.7 in a big way. Maybe one or two of the verses on the bookmark will resonate with the season that you're in right now in your life. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I, I don't understand. I, I feel so condemned. I feel so condemned by what I've done. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Memorize Romans 8, 1 and 2. And they're, again, they're suggested on there. Maybe you just need to simmer in the, that truth from God right now. Maybe you're having trouble feeling at peace. So under the category of I am accepted, Romans 5, 1 is given. That verse says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe one of the verses I mentioned today is what you need. 
Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 1.7, and so on. Write it on your bathroom mirror with a dry erase marker. Put it on a post-it note and put it on your dashboard in your car. Wherever you're going to see it a lot. And just simmer in that truth that God is speaking over you. So that you can see yourself the way that God sees you. Another suggestion would be to come this week to the prayer gathering, Wednesday evening from 6.30 to 8 in this room. Feel free to come at 6 if you like, if you just want some quiet personal prayer time. But 6.30 to 8, we're going to focus our open mic prayer time by expressing our gratitude for our acceptance, our security, and our significance. And we're going to share how we've felt that in our own lives. We'll have some time of quiet prayer at your seat. We'll have a a short teaching. We'll have some time where people can come up and pray with a microphone over the room. And then we'll have a time where the prayer team will gather, will, will scatter around the room and you can go and pray for individual things with them if you like. We had our first prayer gathering of this, kind of in this time, uh, a few weeks ago. And I think if you talk to anyone that was there, they will tell you it was absolutely valuable, wonderful time. So we encourage you to come to that. And then the other thing we're going to do today to celebrate our redemption is we're going to take communion. If you have decided to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, then you should take communion today. If you have said yes to Jesus any time in the past, you should take communion today. Communion is a, a symbol of, that reminds us about what Jesus did for us. We use bread and juice or you know, uh, different elements, uh, different things for elements like bread or we have matzah today. So, but different things that symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. During the Passover meal, there were three cups of wine, and we've talked about this before, but in the, in the story of the Passover meal, there's three cups of wine, two before supper and two after supper. The third one is the cup of redemption. And whenever we take communion, anytime we take communion, we are using the cup of redemption. That's the cup that Jesus told us to use to remember him by because he came and bought us with a price. He redeemed us when we were disregarded. So as you come today, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to do it just a little bit different than usual. I'm just going to have you line up in one line coming down the center aisle. And there's some matzah in the basket. Take a piece of matzah and then I'll be over here and Eric Pearson will be over here. And you can just kind of spread out. And then as you go past us, dip your matzah into the juice. So representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as you go past, we'll say, you are redeemed. You are redeemed. You are redeemed. If you prefer to take communion as a group, you're welcome to go over here. On your right, there's a basket with matzah and there's a a cup of juice for that purpose, whether it's a life group or ministry team or a bunch of friends, whatever. On the left is a setting for those who who need a gluten-free option, so please take advantage of that if you need to. And there's on the second story video venue, there's also a setting in the back of that room that you can take or you're welcome to come up here if you like. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You're not disregarded and discarded and thrown out. You are worthy. You are redeemed. Let's join our hearts in prayer.